And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. everyone and welcome to Earth Destruction Directive and let me be the first to say happy Halloween as this is a very special Halloween guided episode and uh, we're going to be talking about something a little spooky a little bit offbeat not quite the giant monster stuff but I think you'll see where it fits in uh, so today we are going to be taking a look at the vampire doll which uh, was released in Japan under the title, and I this is going to be tough, Yorei Yashiki no Kyofu Chi Osu Ningoi. Literally, Fear of the Haunted House, Blood-Sucking Doll. Now, this was released in Japanese theaters on July 4th, 1970. A summer release for a horror movie, which is a little interesting. And then it played in select American theaters, uh, in August of 1971. Now, this was primarily Japanese theaters in the New York and Los Angeles metropolitan market. It is the first entry in director Michio Yamamoto's Bloodthirsty Trilogy. Now, we have two credited writers. The first is A. Ogawa. Now, Ogawa, best known as a longtime writer for the detective series Roar at the Sun, but he also wrote the other two films in this series, which are Lake of Dracula and Evil of Dracula. He also wrote the ESP-themed thriller Espy. And oddly enough, he wrote Space Amoeba, which is kind of an oddball choice compared to the other ones in, the, in that. Now, the other writer is Hiroshi Nagano. And unfortunately, I was unable to find any information on uh, Hiroshi Nagano. So if any listeners out there are familiar with his work, please uh, send an email or destruction directive at yahoo.com so we can add that. The special effects are by uh, Teriyoshi Nakano, which is actually uncredited. Uh, Nakano, of course, well-known Toa effects man by this point, 1970. He was the head of the special effects department at Toho. Our director is Michio Yamamoto, as I said, best known for directing this film and its two follow-ups, again, Lake of Dracula and Evil of Dracula. Also directed the thriller Terror in the Streets for Toho, which was shot immediately after Vampire Doll, and the two films were actually released on a double feature. I mean, that's pretty good. A double feature with the same director directing both movies. Uh, we have two producers as well. The first is Fumio Tanaka. Uh, Tanaka, primarily known as a fantasy and horror novelist, he started as an assistant producer at Toho in 1964. 
had moved into full producer credit by 1969. Now, in addition to the Bloodthirsty trilogy, he also produced the uh, aforementioned Espy and Space Amoeba, and the ever-popular War in Space. Shout out to Jimmy from NASA and Nathan over on the Monster Island Film Ball. Our other producer is Tomoyuki Tanaka, longtime producer at Toho, who had a hand in pretty much all of their genre efforts from the beginning of the Showa period right up until the time of his death in 1997. So we're going to be uh, talking about this film where you have a synopsis here that has been, let's just say, broadly adapted from Wikizilla. Wikizilla, of course, a great reference site for uh, anything involving uh, giant monsters and would appear even non-giant monsters from Toho as well. So our story goes a little something like this. On a dark and stormy night, Kazuhiko Sagawa takes a cab to visit his fiancée, Yoku Nanamura, whom he has not seen in six weeks due to traveling for business. When he arrives at the Nanamura house, a stately western-style house filled with European art, he is accosted by the mute manservant Genzo before the intervention of Yoku's mother, Shidu. Asking to call on Yuko, Shidu tells Kazuhiko that he is too late, Yuko died just two weeks prior, after her car was caught in a mudslide. Shidu shows Kazuhiko the shrine she has made for her daughter, and the stunned Kazuhiko agrees to spend the night so that they may visit her grave in the morning. That night, a restless Kazuhiko hears what sounds like a woman crying, and upon investigating, finds what looks like Yuko in another room. But as soon as he sees her, he is struck from behind and knocked unconscious. Waking, Kazuhiko finds Shido and Genzo over him. Despite his pleas that he saw Yuko alive, Shido assures him that her daughter is dead. Still unable to sleep, Kazuhiko opens the gift he had brought for Yuko, a clay doll. Just then, he again sees Yuko, this time out in the yard. Dropping the doll, he chases outside after her, finding her by her own grave. Grabbing Yuko's hand, Kazuhiko notes that she is ice cold, and Yuko begs for him to kill her. Embracing his beloved, Kazuhiko says that she is sick and he will help her get better. Unbeknownst to Kazuhiko, Yuko's face twisted to that of a pale monster with golden eyes and a mouthful of fangs, and she moves to bite his throat. Meanwhile, in Tokyo, Keiko Sagawa, Kazuhiko's sister, awakens from a nightmare. Worried that she has not heard from her brother in over a week, she recruits her fiancé Hiroshi to drive to Nanamura home and investigate. Stopping for fuel, the couple learns from the station attendant about the death of Yuko. Arriving at the house, Shiru tells Keiko and Hiroshi that Kazuhiku left days earlier to return home. Keiko asks if she can pay respects at Yuko's grave. At the graveside, Hiroshi finds that the earth is very soft. The two then spot something shining in the nearby grass and, after being accosted by a flock of crows, discover several dead crows on the ground, along with one of Kazuhiku's cufflinks stained with blood. When the couple tries to leave, Hiroshi's car will not start, leading them to ask if they can stay the night. Shidu welcomes them to stay as her guests. After dinner, we learn that Keiko and Hiroshi sabotaged the car as an excuse to snoop around. The couple hears the sound of a woman weeping, and Hiroshi goes to investigate. He tracks the sound down a flight of stairs to a locked door, but as soon as he does, he is found by Shidu, who warns him not to wander as the old house is crumbling and could be dangerous. Shidu also explains that the weeping sound is actually the wind blowing across the skylight. That night, Hiroshi investigates outside of the house, but is attacked by Genzo, saved only when Shidu calls him off. 
Back inside, Keiko investigates the guest room, finding the head of the clay doll her brother had bought for Yuko. Suddenly, Yuko herself is in the room, her eyes shining yellow, holding a knife. Startled, Keiko screams and knocks over a lamp, which brings in Hiroshi and Shidu. Despite Keiko's insistence that she saw Yuko with her own eyes, there is no sign of the girl. In the morning, the couple leaves, and Keiko tells Hiroshi that she is sure her brother is still at the house, with the doll head as her proof. They head into town to do more investigating. From the town hall, they are able to see Yuko's death certificate and learn about the, quote, God of Death curse which seems to follow the family. Twenty years earlier, a burglar had broken into the Nanamura house and killed the entire family with a pistol, except Shidu. So grief-stricken was Shidu that she attempted suicide, leaving the long scar on her neck. Shortly after, Yuko was born, and they, and they have lived in the house with Genzo since. Keiko and Hiroshi then go to talk to the town physician, Dr. Yamaguchi, who signed the death certificate. Yamaguchi informs them that he was with Yuko as she died, and that her injuries were almost entirely internal, leaving her as beautiful in death as she was in life. The only external injury was to her arm, and Keiko says that when she saw Yuko, her arm was bloody. Dr. Yamaguchi is willing to listen, as he has had an interest in the occult since he experienced a ghostly phenomena on a Pacific island during the war, but ultimately says he is a man of science and should not entertain such notions. Afterwards, a couple argues about how to proceed, with Keiko wanting to return to the house and Hiroshi wanting to stay in town. Keiko takes the car and heads back, while Hiroshi is approached by a local who says that he dug Yoko's grave and would be willing to dig it back up for a price. Back at the house, Keiko finds Shidu praying at the shrine of Yuko. Apologizing for entering without permission, Keiko insists that she saw Yuko the night before. Shida responds by locking her in a room. Dr. Yamaguchi soon arrives and with Genzo holding her down, injects Keiko with a sedative. At Yuko's grave, the gravedigger opens the coffin and a body leaps forth. The gravedigger panics and runs away, but Hiroshi sees that the body is nothing more than a life-sized doll. The gravedigger manages to run away right into Yuko, who attacks him. Hearing the man screams, Hiroshi follows, finding the gravedigger's throat torn out. Spotting Yuko, Hiroshi gives chase, but is intercepted by Genzo, who is wielding a hatchet. The two fight to a cliffside, where Hiroshi manages to throw Genzo over the edge to his death. Back inside, Hiroshi confronts Shidu, telling her that Genzo is dead and demanding the truth. Shocked at Genzo's death, Shidu reveals all. Yuko is dead, but her soul still walks the earth. On her deathbed, Yuko called out for Kazuhiku, and Shidu could not bear to see her daughter die in such a way. So Yuko was hypnotized at the moment of her death, keeping her alive, but at the cost of now being a vampire who seeks blood at night. During daylight hours, Yuko retains some of her humanity, begging for death, but Yuko cannot die until she is released from the hypnosis, and the only person who can do that is the one who hypnotized her, Dr. Yamaguchi. Yamaguchi then tells Hiroshi the rest of the story. After the war, he learned that his betrothed, Shidu, had married another man and started a family. This drove him to murder her family in cold blood, but he could not bring himself to kill Shidu. Further, he is Yuko's father, and when she was born, he stayed in town to observe them all over the years. As he tells the story, Yamaguchi hypnotizes Hiroshi, leaving him unable to move. 
Elsewhere, Keiko regains consciousness and breaks into the locked room at the bottom of the stairs. She finds Yuko asleep and Kazuhiku sitting bedside, but is horrified to see that Kazuhiko is merely a rotting corpse. Keiko's scream awakens the vampiric Yuko and snaps Hiroshi out of his trance. Running off to find Keiko, the couple meet up in the front parlor, but are stopped by shots from Yamaguchi's pistol before they can escape. Taunting them, Yamaguchi says that his pistol still has a few shots left in it. Suddenly, Yuko enters the room. Yamaguchi talks to her, telling Yuko that he is her father, but Yuko charges the doctor and slices his throat with her knife. Yamaguchi collapses and dies, blood pouring from his wound. Yuko turns on Keiko and Hiroshi, but before she can make another move, she too collapses to the floor. The hypnosis broken, Yuko loses her monstrous form and power, regaining the beauty she held in life. All Shidu can do is cry over her daughter's body, while Keiko and Hiroshi look on. Well, this was certainly a change of pace from the fair I normally cover here on Earth Destruction Directive. This one seems more at home over on the vault of startling monster horror tales of terror. That said, what did I think of it? Well, let's get right into the notes. Now, Vampire Doll has the general softening of the Japanese film market at the dawn of the 1970s to thank for its existence. Toho had been facing decreasing box office returns in general for a few years, so the time was ripe for some new ideas. Fumio Tanaka thought that a gothic horror film could be the Dracula for Japan, much in the same way that Hammer's Dracula, known on this side of the Atlantic as Horror of Dracula from 1958, had not only essentially helped launch Hammer as a genre studio, along with the earlier film Curse of Frankenstein, but it also kickstarted a little genre boom in the UK, which by 1970 was finally running out of gas after more than a decade. Now, director Yamamoto, he was more interested in directing thrillers than he was horror. So the story ends up being a little bit of both, which fits the overall tone. So while Toho had done horror before, most famously and most well-known for me would be Matango in 1963, and other Japanese studios did horror a bit more regularly, um, Tanaka is believed to have watched Gokei the Body Snatcher from Shokiku during prep for this film, Vampire Doll was a change of pace for Toho, a left turn into gothic horror. The gothic tone of the film is felt right from the start and never lets up. The plot, with a woman trying to find her brother who vanished after calling on a spooky old house in the middle of nowhere, could just as easily have been used in the 1940s in the United States or the 1960s in the United Kingdom or even Italy. The story continues to parallel a traditional gothic, with our heroes sleuthing out the mystery while in grave danger and building to a violent and bloody crescendo in the final reel. Now, please, don't misunderstand. These are not complaints. Rather, I really enjoyed Yamamoto and company's process of creating a modern gothic, but with their sensibilities as Japanese filmmakers. The lighting, the sets, the decoration, all of it could have come from a Hammer film from a decade previous. But being part of a film made in 1970, set in Japan, with Japanese actors, makes Vampire Doll novel an altogether different viewing experience. That 71-minute runtime's have benefited well. The film doesn't have time to dawdle or get sidetracked. There's a lot of energy here as the film unspools. The most unique aspect of Vampire Doll is that even as the film seems to visually emulate Hammer, another European studio's visual style, it still has some shots which are easily recognized as what we would expect from a Toho film. The establishing shots of the Nonamura house in a driving rainstorm, 
achieved via model work and animated lightning, is one such example, clearly assembled by Nakano and his team, but with subject matter far different from what we as Dai Kaiju viewers expect to see in a Toho film. This extends to the story as well, with plot elements which are given a sort of eastern twist. The beautiful vampire girl certainly was trotted out frequently by Hammer, but Yuko is plainly a different take on that trope. Another example? Dr. Yamaguchi's tale from the war could have easily been from any European-centric conflict, but being a Japanese film, World War II is the go-to choice. The mix of East and West is best demonstrated with Yuko herself. She is clearly what we would call, you know, a different, air quotes up to the microphone, sort of vampire. She certainly looks like one, with her pale skin, white gown, and bared fangs. But the yellowed eyes, the bloody arm, and the knife mix up her monstrous look. Her origins kept me guessing, too. Is she what we normally consider a vampire? Is she a ghost? A zombie? Something altogether different? Now, the use of hypnosis, which apparently was inspired from the short story The Facts in the Case of Monsieur Valdemar by Edgar Allan Poe, that took me completely by surprise. Now, in my mind, Yuko, she's something like a scientific yokai. A marauding spirit loose on the earth, not due to any supernatural phenomena, but instead created by a man. A setup for a tragic monster, which is both creepy and offbeat and unusual. Those are things I like. Now, as an aside, the word vampire is not mentioned until minute 56 of this 71-minute movie, three quarters of the way through the running time. Now, as arresting and beautiful as the film is, the cast also does a really nice job in making us care about the people who populate our little mystery. Yuko is played by Yukiko Kobayashi, who will be familiar to Toho fans for turns in Destroy All Monsters, where she plays Kyoko, the hero's girlfriend who has her earrings forcibly ripped off, as we will recall from that film, and in Space Amoeba. But she also uh, did turn up as the evil android Zero-One on Ultra-7, which is a very cool role. Uh, Kobayashi is mostly silent as Yuko, but does well with her few lines, including uh, a tearful plea to please kill me to Kazuhiko by her grave right in the first part of the movie, which is really, that's really kind of chilling. Mostly she uses her physical acting in this role. Kobayashi does a standout job as the titular vampire doll. Uh, she pulls wonderfully devious and frightening faces, especially when her in her full vampire doll makeup. I also like that, similar to her role as Kyoko, we get another example here of a strong female character in a Japanese genre film where the role is made possible because she is a villain. You know, we, we've talked about this before, that sometimes you get the strongest female roles in, as, as villainesses because they're allowed to operate outside the norms of Japanese culture and society, and we get that again here. Um, unlike Industrial Monsters, though, here, Kobayashi plays the evil character all the way through. She's not saved, really, in the final reel. It's her own actions which end the scientific curse from which she suffers, giving Vampire Doll an almost feminist type of agency, especially for 1970. Wonderful performance by Kobayashi to bring this memorable monster to life. Now, Keiko is portrayed by Keio Matsuo. Filmography leans more towards Chambara and gangster films than science fiction or horror. She appeared in Shogun Assassin and Outlaw Gangster VIP, but she also did pop up in the Toho disaster epic Deathquake. I really dug the earnestness she brings to her role as the virtuous younger sister trying to find her brother. Now, compared to Yuko, Keiko is not as interesting to me as a viewer, but the hero or heroine in a horror film is very often outshined by the heavy. 
So that's not really surprising at all in the grand scheme of things. I will add that, similar to Kobayashi using her physical acting as Yuko, Matsuo also gets the opportunity to pull some incredible faces when playing scared or fearful. Her wide-eyed expressions of terror really sell Keiko's fear and distress, adding to that earnestness of performance that I mentioned. Now, Yoko Minakaze plays Shidu, and similar to Matsuo, Minazake's career is more centralized in the crime genre than in the other genre. And she looks the part here. Costumed in a formal kimono the entire running time, she looks like she stepped out of a chambara more than a modern-day horror. The controlled, tight performance she turns in suits the character really well. And as viewers, we have to wonder just what is she hiding? Now, when everything comes out in the last reel and then at the finale, you go from distrusting Shido to sympathizing with her, combining production and acting prowess really well. Hiroshi is played by Akira Nakeo, best known to monster fans for his appearances as Colonel Aso, commander of G-Force in the final three Heisei Godzilla films. Uh, he also turns up as the second prime minister in the two Millennium films, Godzilla x Mechagodzilla and Tokyo SOS. Hiroshi's a good match for Keiko. Nakio plays him believably skeptical, but willing to believe what his fiancée is telling him, which is probably a good choice out there, fellas. I did like that while Hiroshi does get a couple of action pieces with Genzo, he is not the hero per se. He's more like the heroine's sidekick. I also must say that I absolutely love Hiroshi's turtleneck sports coat combo, what we commonly call the Heston. Now, I did spend several minutes trying to get a good enough look at his car to identify it. I was not really able to. If any listeners out there know what kind of car he is driving, please email me, because I am really curious about what this is. Finally, Dr. Yamaguchi is played by Jun Usami, whose credits date all the way back to 1939, and has appeared in projects ranging from Chanbara to crime dramas to tokusatsu TV shows such as Mirror Man and Space Iron Man Kyodane to the mainstream American-Japanese co-production Tora Tora Tora, actually released the same year as Vampire Doll. Now, when Yamaguchi first shows up, I suspected he was going to be the Van Helsing of our little gothic. So I must admit, I was pleasantly surprised when he turned out to be the villain. His performance is like a switch being flipped. Once he's revealed as the man who murdered Shidu's family, he goes from kindly to menacing and essentially the blink of an eye. Really nice performance here. Overall, I thought the film had some strong performances across the board from our leads. And that's crucial for a small-scale, personal sort of film like we have here. Now, despite the film definitely being what we would call a tokusatsu, it does not have a ton of effects insofar as creatures or the like. The only, quote, creature, really, is vampiric Yuko, and she is brought to life with makeup, prosthetics, and contact lenses. Still, she has a great look, with the yellow-gold contacts very, very striking. Kobayashi was unable to see while wearing the contacts, and evidently often bumped into objects on set. Now, as a result, she has a gait which could be called halting, giving her an abnormal style of movement. Now, intentionally or not, this piece of physical performance plays well for the character on screen. Beyond Yuko, I do want to give a special shout-out to the dummy used for when Genzo falls to his death. I am a sucker, an absolute sucker for a classic dummy drop, and this one certainly qualifies, definitely brought a smile to my face, seeing the dummy flail through the air as it went over the cliff. And I would also like to call attention to the aforementioned Nonamura House model. It's a beautiful and imposing piece. It's nice to see a detailed model from the Toho effects team, which does not get smashed, 
blown up or otherwise destroyed over the course of the film. Now, unfortunately, there are some spots where the effects let the film down, namely the day-for-night shots, which vary from well-done to non-existent, sometimes in the same scene. When Hiroshi is running around outside, it is nighttime, but when Shidu orders Genzo to stop attacking him, it is plainly midday. Oh well. Overall, The Vampire Doll is a great start to the Bloodthirsty trilogy. Moves along briskly, it keeps your attention with spooky visuals and a thoughtful story, and it has a really good cast. If you're a fan of gothic horror, then you definitely need to seek this one out. And I think modern J-horror fans would be well-served to check it out as well. Perfect viewing for this Halloween season. Now, if you would like to own The Vampire Doll, your best bet is to pick up the Bloodthirsty Trilogy box set from Arrow Video. That is still available. That has all three films in the trilogy. goes for about $28 online. Now, if you're not sure if you want to purchase it, you can go to TubiTV.com, where um, The Vampire Doll is available to watch for free with ads. So, uh, again, if you haven't seen it, you're curious about it, you can go check it out on Tubi. It's not going to cost you anything except a little bit of time. So I would definitely recommend that. It's a really nice set that Arrow's put together. They always do a good job, though. Uh, so, but I think, uh, I, th I think if you like the vampire doll, you'll end up probably buying the set because they're, they're kind of the same kind of, uh, creatives were used on them and they're, they're make a, a trilogy, you know? So, uh, check it out. And, uh, I said, either check it out on Tubi or pick it up. And, uh, what do you folks think? I throw the question out to you. Have you watched the vampire doll? Uh, do you, do you like it? Do you like gothics? Was it a little too European for your taste? Did you like the mix of European and Japanese horror going on there? Uh, do you want to hear more vintage Japanese horror, including the rest of the Bloodthirsty trilogy? I'm down. I was talking, uh, to my brother Jason before recording that I've got, I've got a fair amount of these vintage J-horror that we can talk about. So if, uh, if everyone out there likes this, we'll certainly do some more of them for next Halloween. Uh, so uh, please write in Earth Destruction Directive at yahoo.com. All right, that's all I've got. I'd like to wish everyone again uh, a happy Halloween. Be safe out there. You know, uh, Halloween is one of those wonderful holidays. There's very few holidays where we specifically go out and interact with the people in our own neighborhoods, right? Usually uh, you, you, you do holidays with family or friends, not necessarily with the people that are your neighbors. So if it's safe to do so, please go out and trick-or-treat or... Treat or if you don't uh, want to go out and trick-or-treat, at least get some candy for the kids that do trick-or-treat. And uh, I always get candy and comics. I have candy, and for kids who can't have certain candies or have dietary restrictions, I also have the mini-comics. So I am always well-stocked on Halloween. Uh, I hope everyone enjoyed this little special Halloween guide episode, and I hope you'll join us again next time on whatever we're going to cover on the regular Earth Destruction Directive. Uh, thanks for listening, keep them stomping, and happy Halloween. This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Daikaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, available at twotruefreaks.com. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you would like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I try to respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I will read them on the show. 
All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at 2TrueFreaks.com. You can also find the show on your favorite podcatcher. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can even leave a review on your podcatcher of choice if you'd like. You can find me on Facebook. Just search for first name Luke, last name E-D-D. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter. Just search for the handle at LJacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. The theme song for this podcast is Future Gladiator by Kevin McLeod, downloaded from Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 license. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun here on Earth Destruction Directive. Tune in next time to hear the crusty old podcaster from Oklahoma say, There's a WTF (laughs) moment if I ever saw one.